Hello, and thank you for joining us today on Workforce Institute Radio. I'm Joyce Maroney, Executive Director of the Workforce Institute Tronos, and today we're continuing the series of podcasts I'm hosting on key ideas from our most recently published book, which is Being Present, a Practical Guide for Transforming the Employee Experience of Your Frontline Workforce. Our book is a practical guide composed of chapters contributed by our wonderful Board of Advisors on how to transform the employee experience of your frontline workforce with a special focus on jobs that require the employee to be physically present to do their job. So think about a cashier at the store, a healthcare worker, or the barista at your favorite coffee shop. My guest today is Dan Chabelle, the managing partner of Workplace Intelligence. Dan is well known for his research, speaking engagements, podcasts, and books. He's appeared on the New York Times and Wall Street Journal bestseller lists, and is frequently tapped as an expert for broadcastism. He's been a wonderful board member for us, and he's clearly a very busy guy. Dan's chapter in our book is entitled Humans, Robots, and AI Collide on the Frontline. In his chapter, Dan argues that AI, that is artificial intelligence, is not going to replace human workers, but makes the case that organizations need to be planning now for how they'll be incorporated AI and how they'll need to prepare their workers to collaborate and thrive in an AI-powered world. So, Dan, thanks so much for joining me today. So happy to be here with you, Joyce. From your your uh, kitchen elsewhere in Massachusetts. <laughs> um, so, uh, Dan, I'm going to get started on the questions I wanted to ask you. And the first one is if you could Please tell our audience about yourself and why you were interested in contributing this chapter to the book. So as Joyce said, I'm Dan. I've, I've written several books. I've partnered with Kronos over the past several years to release many different research studies on topics like burnout and the four-day work week. Those two uh, have gotten a lot of mainstream media attention and have kind of shifted how leaders and employees view the work day, employee engagement, um, how they live and, and just work in general. And so I think making positive contributions by elevating workplace issues is my forte. And, you know, over the course of my career, my, my goal is twofold. One is to kind of support the next generation of leaders and provide advice as they grow in their careers. And then at the same time, advise companies on how to create more human-centered workplaces so people can thrive. Because I always believe it's a two-way street. You need to have a workplace where people feel like they can win and succeed. So you have to advise the companies to enable that to happen with the right programs and policies. And then you need to be a champion of the worker to encourage them to do their best. And I... You wrote this chapter because I have done a lot of work on AI and and the relationship between humans and robots. And I think one of the great questions in our society is, you know, what does it mean to be human in the age of artificial intelligence and automation and augmented reality and virtual reality and all these technologies that are shaping how we live? You know, driverless cars is a great example. What, what's going to happen with that? What What's going to happen to all these, you know, Uber and Lyft drivers? And so technology has always been part of the fabric of my life and I would assume Joyce's life and Kronos's, you know, existence. And, and so studying this topic and seeing, you know, what, 
what is going to be a manager or an employee's responsibilities in the future as technology starts to eliminate a lot of the tasks that they used to do and what do those future roles look like and there's so many exciting and interesting questions that that uh you know i've been asking and trying to find the answers to yeah i um i've also found this to be a really interesting topic for a long time i my my entire working life has been in technology and high technology and um, I have been involved for almost 40 years now and it seems like each new wave of technology has created its own set of questions and concerns about whether technology is going to take jobs away, whether technology is going to make people somehow less human or less involved with each other and and um and certainly some of these concerns are very legitimate i mean definitely the you know initial waves of technology that automated processes that had always been done by people whether that was um a lot of you know people typing uh, for other people or um you know people finding ways to schedule meetings with each other that no longer needed an, an intermediary to do so there's a lot of administrative work um, the need for that did lessen over time, but then a lot of other jobs got created um, for people who were managing, deploying, creating, coding, etc. Um, technology. So obviously, technology is a huge, pervasive presence in, in everybody's life, and certainly in the midst of the global pandemic that we're experiencing, even as we you know, record this where, you know, we're both working remotely, we're both, um, you know, relying on technology in order to make this connection and this recording possible. Um, so, you know, technology has brought a lot of good things to us, but um, you, you do have to manage it with care. And I think that's what brings us to the focus of your chapter. So if you could, can, can you tell us, um, you know, what you believe the key lessons are in the chapter you wrote and what you would really like people to take away from this chapter? Yeah, I think the biggest thing is to rethink your role. I think a lot of people can admit that certain tasks that they do, they don't want to do. In the chapter I wrote for the book, I really examine what future roles are going to look like the connection between humans and robots and the tasks that will most likely be eliminated and then the, the skills that will become most in demand. And since I, I wrote that chapter, there's a recent study by LinkedIn that came out of the most in demand skills of this year. And for soft skills, it's creativity, it's persuasion, collaboration, hard skills, it's blockchain, cloud computing, analytical reasoning. So. Of course, if you want to prepare for the future of work, if we know that a lot of tasks are going to be eliminated, especially administrative routine tasks, we have to start to invest more of our time in the skills that are becoming more in demand. Um, and so keeping tabs on, you know, the future and what, you know, um, you know, reading the news, reading reports, some of which we release at, you know, Kronos, uh, that can really help you prepare for the future because you don't want to be left behind. And one of the interesting things is this um, hard skills versus soft skills, you know, IQ versus EQ. And even though over the many, many years I've been studying, you know, the importance of soft skills, you know, the recent study I did 
you know, last year with artificial intelligence at work, it further proved and validated that soft skills are extremely important. Um, you know, a lot of these new machines and, and artificial intelligence is going to eliminate some of the hard skills that, you know, have made people a lot of money. You know, all these programmers that have their own agents in California because they're making multiple six figures, maybe even seven figures, um, that that has really flattened. Those, those positions are not as high in demand as they used to be. And so even individuals who are making a lot of money have to shift even at that level. So I think that if we know that a lot of these, these um, skills that we're using are not going to be as important, we have to replace those skills. Otherwise, our jobs are going to eventually be in jeopardy. And I know that especially during this pandemic, there's going to be a lot more automation because the cost of labor is higher right now than the cost of the machine. And so therefore, companies will be investing more in automation, which is going to, I call you know, the coronavirus, the gasoline that's being poured on all the workplace trends to fuel them right now, because we're going to see a lot more change a lot faster because companies have to react and start making their investments now. And a study by EY proves this by 41% of leaders are spending, uh, speeding up plans to automate their businesses right now, because you still have to grow as a company. You have to exist. You have to scale. Um, you have to meet the needs of the business. And if, you know, you can't afford, you know, talent and employee benefits and all these costs that are, that are connected to talent, then you're going to start to automate more to be able to meet those needs. And so we're going to see a lot more of that now. And that's going to make us rethink even more of like, who is going to have the jobs of the future? What, how, how are they going to be interacting with robots in order to get their job done? And so the best thing and what I recommend in the book is that, you know, you got to play with these tools yourself. You know, now is the perfect time. We have so much more time now because we're, you know, all stuck at home in self-isolation that we can start to use artificial technology. So for instance, there's AI that lets you, you know, book time on people's calendars without having to do anything. And I think by even using these tools, you learn so much, you learn how it can benefit you and it can start saving you time. So one of the more fascinating things we studied over the past two years is the sentiment around AI. And so in 2018, people were scared of AI. They were like, oh my God, AI, we're gonna lose our jobs. It's gonna be awful. And, and I think a lot of that comes from fear, fear of uh, just not understanding how to use it and the threat of it. Whereas last year, when we asked the same question, we found that people enjoy AI. They're, they're seeing the benefits of it. And, and as a result in HR, over twice the amount of HR departments have implemented AI, uh, which is typically happening in recruiting. We're seeing AI the most uh, used in recruiting right now. But if you're a recruiter, you need to get used to using this AI too. So if, if AI is helping you source and, and expand your talent pool and sift through applications, then what are you going to do? What are you, what are you going to invest more of your time in? So it's, AI is making us rethink our roles and what we're spending time on. Yeah, I think your your comment 
um, you know, the pandemic has poured gasoline on a lot of people's practices. I mean, different way to say that is a lot of processes and uh, workplace assumptions, especially around, um, remote work or flexible options have been like everybody's world getting pressure tested at once. And, you know, I, I have been talking to a lot of different people about this topic in, in recent weeks and, and uh, some organizations where they are, have already invested in the technology allows, that allows people to work remotely where they can, or when we talk about frontline workers, emergency workers, healthcare workers, et cetera, who need to be present to do their jobs, but may need uh, a, a lot of, they, they need a lot more agility right now in terms of scheduling people as you have this you know, surge of patients, you have providers and, and emergency workers themselves getting sick and, you know, organizations that are used to managing the scheduling of people um, via more manual methods are really going to struggle. They're going to struggle. Everybody's struggling right now to keep up, but they're going to struggle more. Same thing with, organizations that have been enabling people to work from home um, versus those who haven't, who are suddenly struggling with not just the technology piece, but the cultural piece of, oh, gee, if people are working from home, how do I know they're working? You know, it's, it's exposing organizations where there are trust issues versus those, you know, who are just like, I trust you, do your best. I know you're not going to be at 100% of your normal productivity, and, and I wouldn't expect you to be because we are all also collectively going through a brutal emotional, you know, trial by fire right now. So, you and know. And what's, what's also interesting, Joyce, and ironic, is that the people who can actually go to physical places like supermarkets are the most susceptible to having their role be automated. Yeah, and yet those are also the people who are, um, you know, who who are really helping us all out right now, right? And 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 imply that it's an interesting question you bring up there, actually, because if you think about the supermarkets, so yeah, could the shelves be stocked, you know, robotically? Could people do self checkout or say yeah? At the same time. The rules about even just market engagement right now are changing on a weekly or even a daily basis in some cases. And the people at the supermarket need to interpret and apply those rules. And, you know, some are doing a great job really looking out for their customers and others not so much. And I think that goes back to your, you know, hard skills versus soft skills, um, we've probably never needed those soft skills more than the people who are out there right now exposing themselves, you know, to a hazardous um, situation in care and chains going for the can shelter at home. In reality, it would be safer if we had robots instead of people at supermarkets, for instance, because robots can't get the virus. They can get viruses in a sense, but not this yeah. virus. And yeah. a robot dies, no one's going to go to its funeral. So I, I think that it almost makes the case for 
more automation, more technology, but also at the same time, some sort of safety net or upscaling, rescaling of workers. So it's it's all of that happening at once. Is it would be safer if robots could were readily available and were in these facilities doing the work that um, is unsafe to do in, in many circumstances. But at the same time, those workers hopefully need to or should be doing something. So there needs to either be a safety net that's stronger or they need to be retrained and, and acquire new skills so that they can reposition themselves in the economy. Yeah, no, it brings I mean, up all was... these questions. Oh, yeah. But from are... the other, the other, <laughs> Big the other standpoint is, is on the remote work. There was a study that came out and we've had like this grand remote work experiment, even though I've been doing it for over 10 years and I know you've done it for a while. This is very, you know, this is very common for me, but people are doing it for the first time in their lives. Right. And so it's yeah. been a huge adjustment. And like what you were saying earlier was, you know, your husband started to lose his mind because he's an extrovert. And I do see there's a big difference between introverts and extroverts when it comes to working from home. Me, this, I'm an introvert. This is, you know, easy for me to do. In fact, I've tried working at a physical office, at a coffee shop. I can't do any of that. So I've, I've, I've given it a try. I put myself in various work environments and working from home is where I'm most productive. So I choose to do that. But what's really interesting is there's a study by Gartner of over 300 CFOs that found that 74% expect previously on-site employees to continue to work remote post COVID-19. And I think this is interesting because of many reasons. One is they're saving money in real estate costs. Two, uh, not only a company saving money on real estate costs, the individual is saving money on commuting costs. Then basically people who are first starting to work remote are enjoying it. So that's preference. Like now you might have a preference to work remote and that could be a recruiting and retention strategy for the company, which I've kind of always believed in flexibility being a huge part of it. And then I think it, it can really help with scale and recruiting in a sense where, you know, now if everyone's working remote, hiring someone from a different state is going to be much easier, right? Like, someone who wouldn't want to relocate a year ago doesn't need to. And therefore that person might accept a job offer that they wouldn't have a year ago. So I think that yeah, one no, of the things I... said that was, was, was so true is if this was a few decades ago, we'd be so bored. We wouldn't be able to work from home, but at the same time, going back to what, what were our discussion on hourly workers, in a sense, working if you're able to work remote, that's a privilege now. Because if you have an hourly job working, you know, on site at a, a grocery store, you can't work remote. So it's almost like remote work has become the new privilege. Oh, it it, it absolutely is, and and the uh, you know the 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 solutions for people who have to be on site to do their jobs are more limited. I mean, a lot of it comes down to uh, scheduling and, you know, can, can you give me a schedule that works with my life? And frankly, privilege isn't uh, widely available now either because it's, it's an all hands on deck situation in pretty much any, any of the industries that, that are still or organi organizational types that are still up and running because they've been essential. Uh, you know, their frontline workforce 
more. And yet a lot of those workers still don't have time off, paid sick time. And many workers are working right now without adequate uh, personal safety protection. And for workers who um, have been in jobs that are now have no jobs to go to because their jobs are not deemed essential, retail, hospitality, et cetera. They're a whole, a whole different, um, you know, boat of bad news. So I think, you know, you're right. And I think they come home to roost with a lot of people. But yeah, working from the work from home and have your income continue is a huge privilege right now. And it's not a privilege that's available to the majority of the workforce who are either working in very dangerous conditions or have no paid work right now at all. So, I mean, that's a whole nother huge topic. So let me, let me bring us back to um, the topic of your chapter. If you, you know, if you think about all the lessons you put out there and, you know, what we're, we're learning time today, what, what do you, what would you think would leaders or organizations more successful as a result of reading your, your chapter in our book? The big takeaway, I think, is to re-examine your role, right? Make a list of everything you do every day and then, you know, highlight or put an X on the tasks that you think a robot could do maybe better than you, right? Or that you might not be doing in the future because we'll have that technology that can be more efficient and, and effective at, at, at that task. And I think once you start eliminating those tasks, you may see maybe every, maybe your whole job will be eliminated eventually, or that, um, you know, you'll be doing less work in the future. And therefore, you might want to prepare or do tasks that you think will become more important. So I think it's reexamining your role. And every person in the world should do this, right? Now, if yeah. you're an hourly worker, what is your role? Is it you know, cleaning, stocking shelves, like make a list of all of that. And I think once you start to do that, you get a sense of, okay, well, you know, if I, you know, uh, clean, clean floors of this, you know, um, grocery store, well, there are robots already that can clean floors. Like even like a Roomba can clean floors. I, you know, it's debatable how effective they are, but, you know, that technology is going to get better and better and better. And so I think that once you start to, to look at the available technology and the tasks that you're currently doing, you can start to map and uh, figure out what the likelihood is that the, the things that you do are going to be automated or not automated. And I think that's important. And then doing research on, you know, like what I was saying before, what are the most advanced skills? There's a lot of online courses, you know, if your company's not providing, you know, uh, learning and development, the curriculum and courses and resources, then it's on you, sadly. And therefore, if you want to have a sustainable career, if you want to, you know, stay employable in this really tough market, I mean, they're predicting, you know, like a 13 to 15% unemployment rate soon. And so I think there's so much more pressure to figure out what to do. And part of what you need to do is re-examine your role you know, look at the market and, and the demand in terms of skills and then try and find a friend, an online course, some some way to educate yourself on 
the skills that are going to become more important and then start to invest now so that once you get out of it, once we get out of this uh, economic downturn, you are better positioned for success. So, Dan, are there, you know, you you have the opportunity to talk to a lot of companies, a lot of leaders, have done a ton of research. Where have you seen particular success stories of organizations that are using uh, robotics, using artificial intelligence in that also benefits their workers? Because while I agree with you that, you know, every worker ultimately owns a big chunk of the responsibility for, you know, having a longer term um, plan and, and developing themselves towards that plan. Some people have more resources than others to do that. So, you know, where, where have you seen examples of organizations that are, you know, helping people make those transitions as opposed to, hey, you know, everybody's on their own to pull those, themselves up by their own bootstraps? Yeah, I think one of my favorite examples is Domino's Pizza. I don't know if you've read this, but they have the Dom Pizza Checker. So basically, it's not replacing workers. It's, you know, augmenting and supporting workers. So it's it verifies that each pizza looks the same, right? Because a lot of building a brand and, and serving customers is consistency. You know, every brand that we admire today is has been consistent, right? Similar messages throughout time, um, a promise of a certain level of value that the consumer gets. And so... They implemented these, this pizza checker, and it, it's like at the, you know, on the ceiling, pretty much, and it reviews each pizza, and it, you know, takes, you know, images of a, a pizza that's cut perfectly, and then it like layers it on top of, of, uh, you know, future pizza, pizzas that are being made by hourly workers, and it's, it's not like those hourly workers are getting laid off. In fact, I think Domino's Pizza is hiring right now, like tens of thousands of workers. I mean, it could be over a hundred thousand. I haven't, I haven't checked recently, but so it's not, it's not like people are, are losing their jobs because of the technology. It's just making sure that the customer is getting a consistent pizza each time they order. And, and that it's, it's almost like holding the hourly workers a little bit more accountable for working a little bit harder to make sure the pizza is, you know, at, at that level that they're trying to, to create. Um, that brand standard, yeah. Yeah, so I think that's a good hourly example. And then the, the other thing that's really fascinating is what IBM's doing. I mean, they're heavily, with Watson, they're obviously heavily involved with AI. And they have uh, at uh, Georgia Tech's uh, school, they have, um, you know, a class on artificial intelligence, and they implemented Jill Watson. So it's like a teaching assistant. And it's able to answer like thousands of questions throughout each semester that uh, students have in the classroom. And so what a lot of people might be thinking is, oh, wow, like this AI assistant is going to replace the teacher. In fact, it doesn't. It just makes the teacher's job easier and more efficient. I mean, teachers work really hard. Like I would never want to be a teacher. They work so hard because it's not even just – you know, coming up with the curriculum and then teaching every day, but it's correcting homework assignments and tests and uh, papers. It is so much work. And so I think that having AI help and, and kind of automate some of those routine, you know, respond to the, the normal questions that students ask can be very uh, helpful. And what the teacher said 
when they were interviewed about, you know, if they think that AI will replace them is, no, there's actually too few teachers in our economy right now. Like, the, the, you know, we would need like tens of thousands of teachers to be able to, su to support um, our education system globally. So actually they think that artificial intelligence will help with that scale, will help teachers do a better job and focus more on, you know, the more difficult questions or spending time with students to help them, you know, through, you know, problems that they might have that are more custom per student. So I think that in these two examples, it's not like AI is replacing uh, in, uh, people, it's actually supporting their jobs to make it easier. Yeah, that's another huge area that's, that's uh, I think, going to see a lot of rapid innovation after, you know, we went overnight to, from, you know, kindergarten through college, all of a sudden everything is, is virtual. And I know, I know teachers who are teaching from home right now and, uh, you know, some are equipped than others, but, you know, not really equipped. And so I can see your point there that, you know, the augmentation of a virtual assistant who could answer questions in between scheduled lessons or, you know, clarify things um, for students. I, I think that seems like a really, uh, that would be a really fine solution that I believe a lot of teachers would benefit from right now is they're scrambling uh, to do their jobs without, you know, basically with zero preparation that this is, this is where we were going to end up this during this academic year. So let me, um, let me move on to my my uh, next to last question, which is you, you I know you talk to a lot of organizations and people about this topic. So what's the common pushback you hear about this? Well, this is why, you know, we are not looking at AI or robotics in our organization or, or we don't have plans to develop our folks to, you know, work in an AI or robotics enabled world. You know, when you, what do you hear and, and, and what do you say in response to that pushback? Yeah, funding, fear, and lack of the right skills. That's usually what it comes down to. And I think that, I'm, I have always said this quote, it's like small steps before big victories, right? It's like, or small wins before big victories. And I say that because it's like, you can start using AI right now for free if you wanted to, like you could, you know, uh, you know, leave this podcast and then, you know, find an AI tool online that you can try. And so I think that it's easier to be a champion of AI in your department at work if you're already using it, even in your personal life. And what's really fascinating that we've studied over the past two years is that behavior transcends. Right. So, for instance, if you're using AI to manage your personal calendar, you know, at home, which is work right now, <laughs> then you're more likely to want to use the same technology at work. Right. It's not like our behavior drastically changes when we go into the office and actually our, our you know, work and life are so blended now that there's no difference. Uh, use the technology for yourself first. Get used to it. And then, you know, look at, I mean, we have, we have examples in the book. I have a ton of, 
you know, examples as well that I've written about where look at what companies or industry are doing. And most of the case studies right now are in recruiting. So at least uh, start with recruiting because there's the most amount of success stories in the recruiting area. Like, um, you know, IBM uses it for recruiting. Uh, various companies, uh, Hilton is a great example. You can look that up online, AI recruiting Hilton. Uh, they've done a really great job and they've, they've been very outspoken about how, you know, it's allowed them to expand their talent pool, have more diverse hires, um, speed up the time to hire. So I, I would start small and start with an application where it's just more known that there's been positive results. Whereas some of these other applications like coaching and learning and development and uh, predictive analytics, maybe there's a few case studies, but it's not, it's not like enough companies are using it in those areas that are, that are where it's working and that they're being public about it, that, that that would be the great, the best part, the best area to try. So start where there's the most amount of case studies, it's most proven and, and where you can just reach out to some of those companies and say, well, you know, we're looking to experiment with AI and recruiting, uh, you know, so-and-so at Hilton, uh, what did you learn from this? Is there any best practices you can share? And you'd be surprised how, you know, all these companies are looking to help each other. I mean, that's why a lot of them document um, their use of AI online because they want to help the industry. Yeah. No, I, I think benchmarking with others who've already taken that next step that you're interested in exploring is always a really uh, powerful strategy. And, you know, who knows, those people who are who are stuck at home might be uh, might be very very open to having a conversation with another human being right now. Um, Dan, my last question for you, and and to bring us home is, what what parting thought do you have on this topic for our listeners that perhaps we haven't talked about already? I think overall, the biggest thing I've said this year somehow is. Uh, I think that the coronavirus will reveal the employers who actually believe that their talent is the greatest asset from those who just say it. So like we've always said in the HR world that, oh, talent's our greatest asset, but you know, in the most difficult times, how employers and leaders respond really is talent, right? And I mean, for instance, I mean, the, 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 the organization that I've been very impressed with over the past month is Amtrak. You know, it's government owned, taxpayer funded, but, you know, you can cancel your Amtrak um, train anytime and, you know, they, there's no fees, you know, even if it's an hour beforehand. And so that level of flexibility, I think, is, is shown that they care about their customers, whereas, and you know this example is coming, whereas Boston Sports Club, they're continuing to charge people. So whoever made oh, the yeah. decision to continue <laughs> to charge people you know, that, that brand is severely tarnished right now, but that's telling during these times, this is what the company's willing to do. This is, this is the leader's call and whether, you know, leaders right now deflect blame or not, it's on them, right? Uh, because they're, they're the most visible person. They have to make the final decision. So I think that when it comes to AI, when it comes to all the topics we talked about today with remote work, um, do you have the right leadership in place? Remote work works if trust is in place, like I interviewed uh, for my podcast, former general Martin Dempsey, and he says the most important thing during a crisis is trust. 
and a lot of that trust has to be built before the crisis occurs. So that's why that's why a lot of people are struggling right now is because there wasn't trust before we we you know had, before we had the national emergency, and so therefore trying to earn trust now can be more difficult. Um, and so any leader can really make a difference now can shine through, you know, you see a lot of these executives, you know, forego their salary, like, you know, at Disney, at Yum Brands, y you know, Yum Brands is like all those, all those brands have what, like tens of thousands, maybe a, a hundred thousand hourly workers. So it just sends the right message, right? It's like, even though they're millionaires, they're saying, hey, I know that you know, my employees are suffering, so I'm going to take the hit too. Yeah, I mean, you either care or you don't, and that that is the foundation for that trust. Do yeah, and a, I mean, Aaron Aiden, I mean, look what, look what he oh, did on, on LinkedIn. I mean, he's the coolest thing he does, I don't know, you probably pick up on this, I'm sure, because you've known him way longer than I have, is when someone starts their first day at Kronos, even if I think they're, they're an intern, he'll go on LinkedIn and comment on, on them saying that they joined the organization. I think that's the coolest thing ever. And, but yeah, that's no, real leadership. Yeah, no, that is real leadership. And, and uh, you know, during this crisis, he is a great example of, of being, first off, he's got a huge bank of trust already built up with, with anyone who knows him in our, in our organization. But uh, he is doing uh, video. He's been doing videos at least once, if not multiple times a week since this all um, started to spin up. It was a practice, about a monthly practice before that. But, you know, just getting out there and saying, you know, hey, this is what's on my mind. I am also, you know, I am concerned, but here's what I'm doing about it. And um, he is not making false promises to people like, you know, he, he can't predict the future and when is this all going to go away and we'll go back to normal. But he is telling people exactly what he and the rest of the leadership team are doing to pressure test the business, to, you know, forecast different scenarios of how things unfold. And, um, you know, not, not trying to mask that or hide that from people, but saying, look, we are all in this together Here's how we're thinking about this. And if you have any insights for me, by all means, share them because, you know, we are we're going to get through this as a as a team. So um, I think that is would be a wonderful practice for any leader now at any level in an organization, not not so much to uh, consume your people's times with with a lot of uh meetings or speeches or whatever, but, you know, find the right way for your people and your organization to get out there with a message of, we care about you, we want you to be safe, um, we we want to do the best thing, you know, for our customers in, in the short term and the long term, um, but we, we're going to, we're going to get through this together. And on that note, Dan, I want to thank you so much, pardon me, for taking the time to be here today and sharing your expertise with our listeners. And for you listeners, thanks so much for joining us. I hope you'll join the conversation by commenting at workforceinstitute.org. And until next time, uh, stay healthy, and thanks so much for listening.